to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and here is part eight in my series on the book of Job. This also happens to be the third part in a kind of series within a series, which has focused on the self or the subject of the self in the book of Job. Um, I've looked already at the notion of ego formation and then briefly at the process of ego death, which I've also called ego breakage. That might actually be a better way of thinking about it. And with all of that stuff in the background, I can move on to the idea of the transformed self. Actually, before I get into this, I should say that while I was planning this podcast series, I completely underestimated what this particular episode would take. Um, I realized about a week ago only that I might be setting myself up for some failure, considering that I do not think I'm the epitome of what it means to be a transformed self. I'm I'm definitely growing, that much is is certain to me, but uh, I'm I'm not a guru. I certainly haven't arrived. So I, I can at least relay what I've discovered, what I am discovering, um, rather than simply sort of some final picture of what what all of this stuff means. So you are very welcome to take what I say here with a pinch of salt, because that's certainly what I'm planning to do. The way I see it, though, the book of Job records a profound rearranging and redesigning of the self. In the end, the main subject of the book, Job himself, undergoes something of a transformation. Not just something of a transformation, but a kind of radical transformation. His subjectivity shifts, just as our own subjectivity can shift as we grow. Transformation, as I see it, is inevitable. Even if we retain some stable core, which I think we do, we all go through changes. But we should ask, how will we change? Or what will we become? Or maybe will we become ourselves or something else? Will we be better or worse? To get to um, answer these questions, I have two basic aims here. The first is to examine a way, not the only way, but the most vital aspect of the way to initiate and encourage growth. The second is to examine the positive side of what transformation entails. I want to look at what we might find when we're being transformed, when when we're undergoing this process, or at least uh, what to look for just to get a sense of whether or not we're undergoing a process of transformation into a better version of ourselves. Are we becoming more true in our self, um, selfhood, I guess, um, rather than just being caught up in the egotism of the false self. Of course, I I realize that transformation is a very personal thing. What is growth for one person is is not necessarily going to be growth for another. Maybe what's growth for one person is going to be a kind of degeneration for someone else. And you hardly need anyone to tell you what you'll be like when you've grown. Uh, You'll have a kind of intuitive sense of that already. If you were a lousy friend, for instance, then, well, being a better friend would indicate that you've grown. If you were maybe neglectful of your health, your attentiveness to your health would show the same thing. You've grown. Um, there are there are also supposedly better things that may be worse. What I mean is, for instance, you, you may be really attentive to your health, but and that would be a good thing, but being completely addicted and obsessed with health, well, that's another thing. That's not necessarily going to be a sign of growth if you're just sort of moving from one extreme to another. So we all know that we have things to work on, and it's not that difficult to see when we're getting things right, if we're paying attention. So my focus here is going to be on a kind of broad image. 
rather than on some of the finer details that will be sort of more individual. I'm going to look at sort of broad brush strokes and maybe you can see some of yourself in, in the picture that I'm painting. As you, you've probably noticed by now, I'm working with a basic conception of the human being as always creating and always being created. And at first this may sound quite naive to any student of human nature. Human beings mostly are conservative in the sense that they tend to stick with what they know, even if it is not working for them. Uh, often we tend to elect to side with what is not working simply because it is familiar. Behavioral psychologists are fond of pointing out something that I think is true. People really don't like change. Small changes, yes. Big changes, probably not. Mostly, we need the world to be predictable. So, of course, I know this. Most people don't think being human involves always creating and being created. But it is possible to see hu being human in terms of potential in terms of more than just sticking with a kind of shoddy, existent mode of being. My assumption is that the endless process of creation and recreation takes place as we participate more intimately in all that is good and true and beautiful, and of course, as we wrestle with all that is bad and false and ugly, which may turn out uh, to be less about intrinsic badness or falseness or ugliness, and more to be about seeming badness, falseness, and ugliness. So I think transformation involves a kind of re-evaluation of, of values. That's going to be part of it. And some of what we have conceived of as being totally evil may turn out to be not completely evil, which is a tricky thing uh, to, to go through because it, it may feel at, at times like your moral structure is getting unraveled. So to conceive of the human being as always creating and being created means that whatever form of non-success in personal wholeness we face, it is never permanent. Part of the point of highlighting the idea in the previous episode of, of the narrative self is that I wanted to get across the fact that we ourselves in transition. This is how we're always going to be. And so there is an optimism in this. I don't think hope is ever completely lost no matter how tragic the circumstances. But there's a vital realism here too. Transcending the tragic is often frighteningly difficult precisely because it takes what is tragic as being actually tragic. I'm not trying to suggest that what is tragic is illusory. Um, there are some conceptions of reality that insist, you know, suffering is illusion. Well, no, suffering is real. Transcendence as I see it, is then not something that happens outside of suffering, but something that works in and through suffering. It's what outlasts both pain, and I would say it's something that outlasts pleasure. If there is an illusion in the tragic, or even in the pleasurable, it's simply that, that it presents itself as being more permanent than it really is. I think this is one of the the difficult things about going through a hard time in in the midst of it, it really feels endless. So so that's part of a, a bigger problem, of course, which is this human tendency we have to absolutize what is relative. It's in grappling with the tragic in this way that we, we find the first clue to how to face our various dragons and monsters and second leviathans, as I've called them, both in the world and in ourselves. It also happens to be something that the book of Job is profoundly emphatic on. 
throughout, I mean, in, in all of its polyphonic textual nature, it, it is insistent on this thing, which happens to be that we need to be radically honest with ourselves. We need to, in a sense, call a spade a spade and a leviathan a leviathan. I've already noted how this plays out in, in Job's own discourse. Job is honest even to the point of self-contradiction, and even to the point of a kind of, you know, revealing his own theological ineptitude. It may not make him look great, but his honesty allows him to see his own thoughts in all of their disturbing glory. And I think we can learn a lot from this. When things are horrible, let's not go around saying that everything happens for a reason, shall we? If loss is painful, let's not pretend that there's a silver lining to, to every thundercloud. And, and I know that I've kind of hinted that that may be a, a conceptual possibility in some of the things I've said. But I, I want to insist here that, that it really is vital to be able to name things as they stand, even if we're perceiving them wrongly. We need to be honest about how we are, in fact, perceiving them. So, really, when terrible things happen, let's say, terrible things are really terrible. But they are not absolute, nor are they permanent, and we can still grow through them. So that's the principle. Let's stay honest. I've observed that many people would far rather construct a fiction than deal with reality or with their current perceptions of reality, and I know that we're all guilty of this in some form or another. I've seen this often, especially in my work at the university. I often have to tell my students if their assignments aren't quite up, up to scratch, and of course, wherever possible, I, I offer advice on how to improve said assignments. That's my job, and I'm obviously here to, to help people to get a, a better sense of what they're doing and how they're doing. Still, I, I can't help, every time I think of this idea of being honest, I often think of this one occasion a while back when I pointed out some errors in a student's work and then explained to the student that even though she believed that she should be receiving a distinction for her work, it really wasn't distinction worthy. Her response was remarkable, only in the sense that she said to my face what I'm pretty sure many of my students have, have thought or said behind my back. She simply told me that she hated me, quite, you know, abrasively put. And what's surprising is I immediately softened because I, I can usually smell a lie a thousand miles away. And I knew that this supposed hatred was just that. It was just a lie. It was something that she was saying to protect her ego from the truth. In the moment, she believed that this was true, but it was masking a deeper truth. So I very kindly said to the student, you don't hate me, do you? You're you're just disappointed, right? And the student then burst into tears and she said, you're right, I hate myself. Because she knew that the work she'd handed in was substandard. She just didn't want to know that she knew this. Well now, self-hatred isn't generally the best place to start with anything, especially if you're trying to find your way back to the light. But at least this time the student was being honest. We'd gotten past the lie. She'd stopped projecting her feelings of inferiority onto me, and she had owned them. It's honesty like this that, that can allow for further honesty. And so instead of building egotistical towers of Babel, we can start making actual sense of the world because of honesty. So for one thing, 
In this example, the honesty helped the student to see that her ego had been bound up in her work. So obviously that's a false sense of self that was kind of trying to usurp her, her, her perception of reality. And of course, if we think that we are what we do, we're bound to find bettering what we do difficult. We're, we're going to struggle to arrive at this idea of the self being created and recreating because we're constantly going to be in a cons conservative kind of mode of being. So conversations about how to change in ways that are healthy are only going to be possible if honesty is given a chance to have its day. Or, you know, to quote, I think this is in Batman, uh, The Dark Knight, it's let truth have its day. As pretty much every defense mechanism we have in ourselves shows us, we lie to ourselves because truth is often painful. And we generally want to protect ourselves from pain. But it is only in facing the painful truth that we have a chance to grow and to be transformed. Most of us have a few voices in our heads, all competing for attention and dominion. And this is not just people with split personality disorder. This is all of us. We all have these competing voices. Most commonly, there is a conflict in us between two voices, which is sometimes why we can be angry with ourselves. I'm sure you've said that from time to time. Oh, I'm so angry with myself. Who is getting angry with who here um, is worth asking that. Internal conflict often feels like two or more sources of pressure, and the dilemma we're faced with involves trying to figure out which one of the voices is right. But we can only do this if we acknowledge all the voices we're hearing. The trouble is, we may tend to easily silence one of the voices unjustly, especially if we want to maintain a particular sense of our ego selves. So let's look at how this plays out practically. Let's say you're a people pleaser. So when people ask you to do something for them, immediately a few voices crop up. The most prominent voice might be your people pleaser voice. That's why you're a people pleaser. And it will be telling you to say yes immediately and to help out in whatever way you can. This is not in itself a terrible thing, of course, except that this is not usually the only voice that you'll hear inside your head. There's probably also another voice, at least one, that's pointing out things along the lines of you don't really have time to help out. You, you have other priorities. Your family needs you. Your workload at work is unbearable already. Are you sure you can handle taking on something else? So to ignore or silence this, this second, quieter, seemingly egotistical voice is to land yourself in a kind of trouble. You end up saying yes to the thing that part of you knows you should not be making a priority. And when you do this, the universe is thrown out of balance. In a way, I know this sounds like an exaggeration, but I'm not exaggerating because when you are out of balance, the universe feels out of balance too. This is the nature of our own subjectivity. The upside of saying yes to a request, as in this example, is that your lovely ego structure remains intact. You are exactly the considerate, people-pleasing person you, you want to be and think you are. You're a kind of savior of humanity. You, as your selfless actions show, are definitely not selfish. The downside is that this ego structure is a lie. Your yes may have been compelled by a number of things that have less to do with living with integrity than with maintaining the false self.
uh, you feel good about yourself for being so helpful, but do you see how really selfish this is? In fact, one of the tricks uh, in self-awareness or developing self-awareness is to look for the selfishness behind the virtuous act. It's really difficult to do this, but it's it's really illuminating at the same time, uh, which is, of course, why we would even bother with such a thing. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why suffering can be so transformative. Often in suffering, the second voice can't be silenced. It speaks whether we want it to speak or not. And sometimes the second voice is angry and ugly and it makes us look unlikable because deep down there is a lot in us that's unlikable. But when we know what the second voice is saying, we have an opportunity to actually address it properly. As an aside, here's something else I've been thinking about along these lines. Uh, sometimes we want to take the suffering of our friends away. Uh, I know that you know whenever my friends struggle, I one of my natural gut reactions is to want to say to them, I wish I could take this away from you. But sometimes suffering is the very thing that may lead them into a space of enlightenment. Taking their suffering away may end up robbing them of some of the profoundest moments of growth possible. Again, I'm not saying that the suffering is good. I'm not at all saying that. But if we're open to it and if we pay attention to the point of meaning outside of our present traumas, the suffering can be wielded for good. I realize this is always this is a tough thing to say, but the alternative that it's completely meaningless and pointless and you can't learn from it. I'm, I'm not sure that's a great alternative. There is, of course, more that could be said on the subject of confronting the darker parts of ourselves in times of crisis, but this is the crux. Radical honesty. Without it, growth is impossible. Radical honesty involves truly listening to ourselves, to the nudges and promptings within us. Because, amazingly, it seems that the soul yearns to breathe and grow. And in a, a kind of astonishing way, the map of life is within us. Or as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is within us. The path to transformation is there. It's just that we have to let it happen in a way. So radical honesty is the first step. And as I've hinted, this needs to be coupled with an intense longing for that which transcends us. We become what we behold, what we pay attention to will shape us, which raises some important questions. What will we be shaped into? What is the result of this growth? What does transformation look like? It's one thing to talk about changes happening and quite another to delve into the concrete particulars of what changes we ought to expect in ourselves as we learn and grow. This, of course, is a huge subject and it demands probably a series on its own. So, to help us to stay focused, I'm going to stick with what we learn about transformation in the book of Job, since that's the series we're in. And probably the best place to look is at the strange character named Elihu, who I've referred to as Elihu before, because it's fun to say it that way, but it's probably a better pronunciation to stick with Elihu. As I've already mentioned, Job follows a pretty standard narrative format to begin with, after being introduced to Job, we, f we find the backstage dialogue between God and Satan. Then we shift to the drama um, that's happening on earth as it is more or less in a rather troublesome heaven. And then the argument be between God and his bad conscience turns into an argument between 
Job and his bad conscience, as embodied by his friends. And then there's a huge interruption. So this is where the narrative takes a turn that we didn't expect, and I think it's deliberate because I think that's part of what the transformation of self involves, an interruption. Out of absolutely nowhere, a guy named Elihu begins to speak. From the reader's perspective, we may have thought that the only characters there in the story were Job and his three friends, and maybe Job's wife, although the brief appearance, um, her brief appearance towards the beginning of the book feels more like an exit than an entrance. She has been, so to speak, turned into a pillar of salt, because regret has a way of turning us all into lifeless condiments. But then, almost kind of comically, Elihu shows up. Where did he come from? Well, scholars have pondered this very strange entrance for some time, and I can tell you that they don't know exactly what to make of it. But in my view, the best explanation is found in the idea that Elihu represents the irritated reader, which is such a great way of thinking about it. Maybe Elihu is the author's little autobiographical insertion for all we know. But for me, Elihu represents a different kind of consciousness, a new consciousness, that then grows and expands to allow for an even more profound consciousness to enter the scene, that of God himself. And the God that shows up later is a totally different God from the one we meet at the beginning of the book of Job. At least that's the way I read it. I don't see them as, as being congruent necessarily. The reason for this is tied up to the question of transformation. When we change, our consciousness of God changes too. I think our, our receptivity to the divine is transformed. In stronger terms, one of the clearest signs of transformation is that the God you thought you believed in turns out to be kind of, well, dead. The God at the beginning of the book of Job is not the one that shows up in the end because Job has changed. I think that's one of the functions of this literary form. It's an amazing thing to realize that the book of Job is a kind of subjective story. It's more about the inner life of Job than about the external events, which is why I think so much of, of it hinges on dialogue rather than on the events. Just as the Satan character can be understood as representing hermeneutic suspicion, Elihu represents hermeneutic frustration. He can't believe... <laughs> Like most of you can't when you've re read the book of Job. He can't believe he suffered through all of those chapters only to realize that everyone he was reading was a total idiot. Okay, obviously I'm exaggerating, but it's only a slight exaggeration because Elihu is really, really angry. As he enters the scene, he makes a few things very clear. The one is that he's young, which means that he hasn't been that keen on arguing with all the old folks in the story namely Job and his friends. Back when I was a teenager reading the book of Job, this instantly, this, the fact of Elihu's youth, instantly made me a fan of him. Um, it's nice to be young and to be more clued up than everyone around you, right? Another thing Elihu announces, and it is crucial, is that he thinks that the old folks have tried to represent or present the voice of wisdom, but what they've done instead is inadvertently announce that they're really clueless. For Elihu, Job himself is actually included in this criticism, so Elihu is not very fond of what Job says either. Job is as much a house with lights on and no one else at home as his three friends. Then the third thing is that Elihu points out 
that he has been reluctant to say anything on account of his age and his experience. He hasn't wanted to be arrogant. But the, the trouble is that he's been silently pondering everything that's been said, and his rage has been building up uh, like too much gas in a soda bottle. And, and all that repression has basically set him up for a miniature literary volcanic explosion. It turns out that Elihu's main frustration with the older folks is that their wisdom is scraping the surface. Their honesty has been partial, which means that it's been a lie. You know, it's not the whole truth, therefore, you know, it's edging towards non-truth. Elihu repeats a number of arguments of the others, but in a fashion that suggests that he actually knows what he's talking about. Elihu suggests something that I think is really true. We should be very, very wary of wisdom that we haven't lived. Job seems to have acquired a fair amount of wisdom, but his pronouncements on his own suffering have tended to make absolute what is in fact relative. Job's friends too have had a kind of semblance of wisdom, but they tend to draw conclusions that are unjustifiable since they were taking their limited experiences and universalizing them, assuming that what they have to say is intrinsically going to apply to Job himself. Is it okay to talk outside of our experience? Well, maybe, but only when we insert multiple disclaimers and caveats. Maybe we're helping a friend to grapple with his situation. We're going to be doing this from time to time. But we should be very careful not to assume that his situation is exactly the same as things that we have lived through. More than this, at least to my mind, Elihu talks about God in a way that moves beyond doctrinal and dogmatic knowledge. He talks about God as subjectively felt and known. The term he uses for knowledge of God is identical to that of Adam's knowledge of Eve in Genesis. This is not a detached sort of epistemological certitude, but a deeply felt, deeply human and embodied experience, which also happens to be an experience of something that is transcendent. This is a knowledge that goes beyond understanding and into the heart of faith. And I think that this is the profoundest shift that happens in, in the transformation of anyone. God becomes a matter of experience. This is really difficult to explain, especially in an age that assumes that information equates to knowledge or wisdom. But information is only really untranslated, unexperienced knowledge. Information is undigested. It has to become nutrition for the mind and the soul to become knowledge, true knowledge, and then wisdom. What Elihu's startling entrance into the scene suggests is that a shift is necessary. Truth has to become, in some sense, subjective. This is a very Kierkegaardian idea, but I think it applies very well to the narrative we find in the book of Job. Truth can't just be some external thing, although the externality of truth remains vital in the life of faith. But so truth, truth is something that is internal. Job is a book that deals in the externalities of nature and of the self's kind of fragile state in the face of nature. But there is a movement. Job needs to encounter the divine within and for himself, not in the egotistical sense that the self is the source of transcendence, but in the humble sense that the self is the only thing that we possess that really allows us access to what is beyond the self. Transformation comes with greater openness. The boundaries that were once so clear and solid become 
porous. And identity itself has to be changed. Immaturity will see the ego aspect of the self as being identical to the self. I've spoken a little bit about this already. For the ego, bodily being and self-image equate to the self. For the ego, the tribe is really important. Labels of identity like I'm Christian or white or straight, etc. are supposedly truths that can be trusted. Which is really stupid, but it seems like this is a kind of necessary evil. Dualistic thinking abounds for the ego, which means that the ego is fond of reinforcing itself through really sharp dichotomies. For the ego, everything is seen in terms of security and threat, which means that the ego is in a constant state of trying to defend itself. This prevents growth. As I mentioned, external behavior is also regarded by the ego as being equal to the self. This is a state of of pure pressure and torment. If you mess up, then you are a mess, if this is the kind of realm that you're living in. If If you sin, then you are sinful. If you fail, you are a failure. And in all likelihood, the ego sees emotions as being direct representations of the self's experience of the world. The ego has to learn that what you feel is not who you are. What you think is not who you are. You are not a body, your station in life, your neat conceptions of life, the universe, or anything. You, the true you, that is, goes beyond these things. But as I've suggested, the ego breaks. And in the process, a deeper, felt, embodied knowledge becomes possible. This, I think, is the wisdom that Elihu is talking about and which Job hints at himself, um, this is in chapter 28. This level of knowing is more intuitive and much more self-aware. It's no longer good enough to know things just at the level of dogma or doctrine. They have to be subjective reality. So there's a a great form of denigration in in modernity against the subjective. Um, And I think this is hugely problematic because the subjective is our access to truth. It's what we use to access truth. As I see it, this is a profound aspect of a a lot of emergent and progressive Christianity. It celebrates the intuitive and the embodied. It tries to get, so to speak, beyond good and evil and into the personal experience of faith or even faithlessness. This is really wonderful, But it is a terrible place to get stuck, since it presents the danger of regarding the deconstruction of the ego state as a kind of final state. For a lot of people who experience the the death of their faith, the death of their God, they end up getting stuck smack bang in the middle of the death of God, with no fuller realization of the God or self beyond the death of God. My experience is that this level of maturity, this kind of deconstructed self, is much better than the previous state of pure ego. The trouble is, it can also harden into another form of ego, because there's always ego trying to pull you back into this false conception of self. So to be saved from this egotism, we have to move into a phase of kind of powerlessness and surrender. And I think Job's growth is very much dependent on his increasing surrender, surrender to the truth of his experience, the surrender to the the limitations of his knowledge and to what is breaking in from the outside or from within that reveals a new kind of world order to him. There's so much talk of the space of Holy Saturday or the time, sacred space, I guess, in progressive Christianity. And I I really love this awareness of how life is precisely or considered 
as the experience of being between death and resurrection. But this kind of getting stuck in Holy Saturday can be a kind of egotistical resistance at the same time. The egotistical mind sees death and resurrection as separate, but as we move more into non-dual consciousness, the distinction between death and resurrection isn't that easy to see. Every death is already the promise of resurrection. So is there hope? Yes. Is the night, there a kind of night light for your dark night of the soul? Yes, but it's probably not the one you're thinking of or expecting. There's a danger in assuming a particular kind of night light. But there's also an equal danger in assuming that all hope is lost. I think Holy Saturday is holy as an idea, as a space to be in, because it exists between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, not because there is no Resurrection Sunday. The hope of a kind of resurrection starts to emerge in a new sense of self, a self that is both more than it thought it was and less, both flawed and a kind of perfection, both finite and a spark of divinity, limited but infinite. There's there's no arrogance here really because everything that the self experiences from this point originates from outside the self or beyond the self. Everything good is received as a gift. Even the difficult and painful things can be transformed into gifts because they are not the self. They are just things happening to the ego. At this point, the universe is one. And there's a movement towards total non-judgmental self-acceptance. The main thing I'm getting at in all this is that transformation shifts our main point of identification. This is something I will be saying a little bit more about in a later episode. When, when we hear the hymn Amazing Grace, there's that line about the shift from being blind to seeing. The center of conversion is, however, rather paradoxically, not that I am less blind, but that I can see because of what I cannot see. I'm still blind, but something or someone has become my sight. Um, my identity is outside of myself at this stage of, of transformation. Well, I guess this is always true, even for the egotistical self. The, the difference is that the new point of identification transcends the limited tribal boundaries of the ego self. Chesterton points out that this is what all mysticism is about. I know by means of what I cannot understand. Weirdly enough, I know because of what I cannot know. Whereas before the ego has to do all the work, and it's totally draining and exhausting work, now I feel like the work has been done for me. That, that's what this uh, produces. This is the experience of grace. This is not grace as, as the opposite of work, which a kind of crude Lutheranism would have us believe. Grace is the opposite of work is a kind of theological and existential nonsense. Rather, grace is that which transcends work and non-work. Grace is something that does the work through us and for us and in us, and it's something that feels like rest even in work and prompts us to embrace rest more readily. Uh, another huge topic on its own, which I, I certainly do have plans to get to at a later date. When, when we are transformed, we are more integrated. That's probably the word you've, you've heard many times. We're, we're much more attuned to different parts of ourselves. We also know how to act in a way that helps all of these parts of ourselves to align. All the different voices to actually communicate and arrive at some form of agreement. 
we're more honest with ourselves and more honest with others. That's a definite sign of transformation. When we're transformed, we start to know God as a personal reality apart from dogma. This doesn't, by the way, mean that dogma totally disappears. It just it gets completely re reframed. Our central point of identification shifts and then keeps on shifting. We're, we're no longer part of a religion, nor are we selves bound up in specific ideological con commitments. But simultaneously, we are not therefore transformed into wishy-washy, you know, flaky liberals, if that's the kind of thing that you're worried about. Being more open is that happens, but that is accompanied by a stronger sense of discernment. So being more open doesn't mean merely ceasing to be a stuck-in-the-mud conservative, but involves a kind of uh, movement beyond the narrow, all I, I guess all narrow political configurations, conservative and liberal, for instance. Dismissing all boundaries is also inhuman, and it fosters a kind of egotism too, or kind of, and, and I think a more paralyzed egotism, uh, because you you know, you don't know what to do with all your energy. You, it's all sort of dispersed and chaotic. To be caught up in dichotomies like progressive or conservative, I think, is actually a kind of indication of an untransformed self. Um, to sum this point up, transformation moves into the paradoxical. It's an ability to perceive things in a kind of non-dual form. And Weirdly enough, there actually have been scientific studies on this stuff. So not all of this stuff is is uh, just hocus pocus. Um, different forms of consciousness do, in fact, exist that show how we move, uh, move and grow through through life. And this applies both to our sense of our knowledge systems as well as to our, our awareness of transcendence. And then this brings me lastly to <laughs> the the entrance of God into the, the later chapters of the book of Job. I will be saying more about this later, but I think it's a fairly good clue into what tr transformation involves. It opens us up to awe. The entrance of God is not supposed to evoke simple terror, but is an indication of what awe does. It asks questions, for one thing. It perplexes, and yet it also comforts. Awe is accompanied often with gratitude and also with awareness. The transformed self takes less for granted. This is another huge topic on its own, and, and it's actually the thing I want to finish the series off with. But before I get to that, I have two other episodes on Job to get through first. The first will be a kind of interlude, uh, which I'll explain next week. And then there's going to be a bit on the transformation noted in the book of Job that transforms our relationships with others and with the world. And finally, we're going to get to the topic of the awe of God, whatever that means. So thank you very much uh, again for listening in. If you want to support this podcast on Patreon, check out patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. My plan is to get some rewards stacked up there for any of you who do support me there, including some in exclusive content. I've got some great plans for that. Uh, in the future, and you are very welcome to mail me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Cheers.